Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Um, first of all, I'm Tim Chapman. I'm the executive director of Heritage Action. We're the sister organization of the Heritage Foundation. We do lobbying and advocacy on Capitol Hill and work with grassroots Americans across this country, many of whom I'm excited to announce will be engaged in this effort um, in the coming weeks and have been engaged. Uh, to my left is Representative Jim Banks from Indiana's 3rd District. We are excited to partner with him on this very important topic. Um, he's been a leader on this topic for us, um, and we expect um, to see some forward momentum here over, uh, um, in this Congress. Uh, next, we have General Tom Spohr. General Spohr is the director of the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. Uh, and Dr. Lindsey Burke is the director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Education. So some of you may know that April is the month of the military child, so it's an appropriate time for us to have this conversation. Military families um, endure many burdens uh, for the service that they do for our country. And one of the burdens that they endure um, is the need to switch locations frequently. Um, and doing this can be very inconvenient for families, can be a tough burden on these families, especially when you think about um, the opportunities they may have for getting their children a good education. Uh, the Pentagon made policy changes in 2016 in direct response to this um, that, that would enable families to remain at duty stations for longer time periods, but there is certainly more work to do here. Um, more than half of all active-duty military families live in states with no school choice options. I think that's an important um, stat to remember. And this is despite the fact that there's overwhelming support amongst military families for school choice. According to a Military Times survey, 35% of respondents said that the dissatisfaction with the child's education was a significant factor in deciding whether or not to continue military service for many of these families. So it really is a national security issue if we are losing service people uh, because of this issue. Consider this. A recent report states that the Air Force was short roughly 1,500 pilots, including 1,200 fighter pilots, and it costs roughly $11 million to train just one pilot. Um, many of these pilots leaving the military for the private sector. I know this from firsthand. My brother was a weapons system operator in an F-15 Strike Eagle. I saw him spend nine years of his life getting trained and being deployed three times and then saying it was, it, it, he, he had to go. Um, it impacted his family, um, and that's a huge drain to lose that kind of investment. So the proposal that we're talk talking about here this, this morning um, is legislation, H.R. 1605, the Education Savings Accounts for Military Families, um, sponsored here by Representative Banks. The legislation would provide active-duty military families federally funded education savings accounts. 
that they could use to pay for educational products and services that work best for their children, including materials to educate their child at home, private school tuition, district and charter school services, personal tutors, online classes, education therapies, etc. We see a huge need for this. We see a very um, reasonable strategy coming up where we'd like to attach this in the Senate to the NDAA um, and think that we have the chance to do that. Senator Mike Lee has partnered with us on, the, on, on that strategy. And I'm also, as I alluded to earlier, happy to announce that tomorrow Heritage Action will release a letter signed by 3,000 military families across this country supporting this piece of legislation. There is real support by real people in the military for this, uh, this, this effort. So with that, I would like to begin the questions. And we'll go through a couple. Well, I'll, I'll moderate a, a conversation here this morning. We'll go through a couple um, questions, and then we'll save some time here at the end if there are questions from the audience. Um, first question for Representative Banks. Um, as one of the most recently deployed members of Congress, why did you decide to serve your country? Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you to the panel, each of you, for taking an interest in this um, significant issue. Um, I, I, I chose to serve my country in uniform for the same reason that I ran for Congress, to uh, make a difference for my country, to give back, to, to serve. Um, I, I, I put on a different uniform these days in a suit and come to Washington, D.C., but there was no greater honor in my life than putting on the uniform of a Navy officer and uh, doing that in the reserves for six or seven years, going to Afghanistan, putting on the uniform every day in, in, in service of, uh, of my country, this great country. So I have, Tim, I have rarely worked on a piece of legislation that I am as passionate about, if at all, than this piece of legislation, because there is not a, well, my, my service in the reserves was uh, unique and, and different from those who serve in, uh, in active duty military settings, there is not a military family who I've ever spoken with um, who, was in the, who was in the service for any number of years at all um, who hadn't dealt with this issue, moving from one duty station to another duty station to another duty station and being faced with tough choices about the education of their children. I, I serve on the House Armed Services Committee today. I travel the world and meet with our troops, and this issue is a readiness issue that affects our military families, puts, puts um, unnecessary stress on our families in the military because parents are faced with the choice of whether or not they accept the next assignment and take their kids to a subpar school that is not as good as the school that they are enrolled in at the moment, um, either that choice or to get out of the military altogether. That, that's what makes it a fundamentally a readiness issue. But more important than that, this is about right and wrong, okay? This is about giving our, our, our men and women in uniform, our, our nation's heroes, um, this is about giving their families the best educational choices that this country can possibly give them. And that, that's why I'm so passionate about education savings accounts for military families, this legislation. I look forward to um, talking a lot more with you about lessons that I've learned over the past couple of years of carrying this bill, lessons I've learned from our opposition, um, how we've retailored the bill from the last version to this version, and the strategy moving forward. So I'll 
I'll quit rambling. With yeah, that. I think that's great, and I'll come back to you on that because I think that's important. Um, General Spore, uh, talk maybe expand a little bit on this issue of ready, readiness and retention, um, and how you see this particular piece of legislation kind of fixing that problem. Yeah. So right now, today, it's a tough recruiting environment for the United States military, and part of that has to do with the U.S. unemployment rate, which is at historic lows, as you know. 3.8% unemployment, very low for our country. And there's always been a direct correlation between that and how difficult it is to recruit enough people uh, for the military. But that isn't all that's making things difficult. Uh, the United States, the public, is less and less aware of their, of their military. This distance, you hear a lot about it, the civil-military divide is growing because not, a, not enough people have either relatives or sea service members, so they don't know about it. So what they do know they get from TV, and they get from movies, or they get from commercials. And unfortunately, what you see in the media about the United States military is not always accurate. You see people uh, advertising to have support uh, wounded warriors and that type of thing. And so you get this message that everybody that serves comes back wounded, either mentally or physically in some way. And that's you know, clearly not an accurate portrayal, but it's, it's what's out there. It's what the American uh, public sees. And then there's a third dimension, and that is because of growing health problems and other challenges, less and less of America's youth is able to serve. Only 71% uh, of youth aged 17 to 24 are actually even qualified to, to, to join the United States military. All those things are combining to make it a very difficult recruiting environment for the United States military. Last year in 2018, uh, three of the four services made their recruiting goals. The Army did not. The Army set admittedly a very high recruiting goal to recruit 76,000, but they fell short and only were uh, able to recruit 70,000. So they fell about 6,500 short. Now, they say that's because they, are, they were uh, inept, that they didn't use social media correctly, that they didn't go to the right cities. You know, they have typically focused on the high payoff places like Texas and Florida, and so now they're reengaging, trying to get to places like Boston and Philadelphia. Um, there's a reason people is, you know, we have not done well in those because people are not propensed usually to serve, you know, don't desire to serve there. So I think they may get more success in 2019, but I think, at least in my opinion, we're on the cusp of some very difficult recruiting years uh, for the U.S. military. And so this, this 2018 bump that the Army had, I don't think it's just a 2018 problem. I think it's a long-term problem for the United States military. And you can look at other... Western countries, uh, Japan, South Korea, Norway, um, they are having severe challenges recruiting enough people for the military. Norway went all volunteer, and now Norway is having to go back, um, I'm sorry, I think it was Sweden, to the draft. And so some people have really not, they've not been able to attract enough people. So recruiting, in, in summary, is really, I think we are looking at the edge of, a, of some very lean years for the United States military unless we fundamentally change something. Retention, the ability to keep people in the military service that are in there now not is pretty good right now. But uh, Tim mentioned some problems. So pilots in the Air Force, pilots in the Army, probably pilots in the Navy that I'm not aware of, um, they are leaving for commercial uh, opportunities. And so retention, by and large, is pretty good, but there are isolated pockets where the military is having trouble keeping people. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Um, Lindsay, can, why don't you walk through exactly what the legislation does and why this is such a good fit for military families? Yeah. 
Well, thanks, Tim, and thanks, Representative Banks, for being here, and General Spore for uh, walking us through all of this. My area of expertise is education policy, so it's always really interesting and informative to hear from our national security team on the challenges that our armed services face, and they are great. I mean, a 6,500-person shortfall is, is no small shortfall at all, and it's really interesting to hear how that shortfall is sort of almost uh, at least the approach to getting those members is region-specific, that the military would go to a state like Texas to recruit. And it is interesting, if you look at the states that have active-duty personnel above a 100,000-number figure, there are four states that have more than 100,000 uh, military families there, and Texas is one of those states, as is California, Virginia, and North Carolina. Those four states have more than 100,000 active-duty personnel. And so if you look at those states and then you contrast that with the education policy challenges and just the landscape of educational opportunity in those states, the issues become pretty clear. And so I wonder if that nexus in Texas uh, has a lot to do with the education, lack of educational options that are there. If you look at Texas, just 28% of eighth graders in Texas can read proficiently. 28% of eighth graders. Same situation in California. They're actually one percentage point higher. 29% of eighth graders in California can read proficiently. You get a little better rate in places like Virginia and North Carolina, where it's over a third there. But overall, if we look at the educational outcomes in these states, they're pretty dire. And Tim correctly uh, drew our attention to the fact that if you look across the country, half of all military families live in states with zero school choice options at all. And it's such a contrast if you think about that relative to how education choice is really progressing in the states. We now have 29 states and D.C. and Puerto Rico that operate 65 private school choice programs today. So that could be something like an education savings account, which is this approach that we'll talk about. could be a voucher option, a tax credit scholarship option. And so we're seeing wonderful choice expansion in the states but the federal government is the only entity that can provide to military families education choice that is actually portable across state lines, which is where this proposal comes into play. So this proposal is innovative and critically needed. This is something that would provide an education savings account of about $6,000 to eligible active duty military families. So an eligible student would receive an ESA, an education savings account of $6,000, and that money could then be used to pay for any education-related service, product, or provider of choice. So as Representative Banks alluded to a minute ago, that could be private school tuition, it could be online learning. If a child needed special education services and therapies, that would qualify. It could be charter school courses and even individual public school courses. And one of the most notable facets of an ESA is that unused funds can be rolled over from year to year. This is just an incredible innovation, even within the school choice space. It enables parents to be really targeted and intentional about how they're spending their child's share of education funding. So to have an option that is that flexible, that is portable across state lines, and that innovative is exactly the type of approach that, and by the way, is consistent with the U.S. military's overall goals of improving competition um, in the sector. So a really smart approach that would go a long ways in 
improving hopefully both recruitment and retention efforts. Wonderful. I, I want to just highlight something that was kind of a subtext to, to what Lindsay was saying. She talked about this being a, a great approach for a federal um, uh, action on, on the issue of school choice. Who we've been working a lot with the administration who, um, who we disagree with on whether or not there should be a federal um, school choice or fe- federal tax credit for school choice. Um, they want to do something federally uh, on this issue because they are right that this issue is a powerful issue um, and it's an important issue for Republicans to be leading on. Um, there's no doubt about it. We think that this is a good way to do it. That this could, um, if you have the if you have the desire to do something federally on school choice, there's a very appropriate way to do it, and it's when when we're talking about this issue. Um, so there's a little subtext there. Um, Representative Banks, you talked about lessons learned. I'd, I'd be interested. I think a lot of people here would be interested in because you've been doing this now for a few years, um, and so you've been able to interact with your colleagues. You know, maybe cross the aisle some, talk to some Democrats. Some. Where are kind of the fault lines in in the conference right now? And then the fault lines. You know, are there any opportunities to make inroads with Democrat support here? Well, I hope so. Um, I haven't given up yet, at least. But let me go back uh, to the to the very beginning in two thousand. Um, 17, when we first introduced the, the first iteration of the Military Families Education Savings Account legislation, we funded it using impact aid dollars. And um, we received a great deal of resistance from um, lawmakers who come from districts who receive a fair amount of impact aid dollars that, that uh, fund um, area public schools that offset uh, as offsets to area public schools in those districts. So I was, I was, Tim, I was a brand new freshman congressman at the time. So imagine my surprise when I met many um, of my colleagues who I considered uh, conservative colleagues, but they were howling yeah. about this piece of legislation yeah. because at that point it was receiving a lot of attention um, because of the great work of you guys and others. There, there was, we had, at that point, we had 77 co-sponsors of that first uh, version of the bill but on both the Education Committee and the Armed Services Committee, which I serve on both of those committees, a number of my colleagues were against um, that uh, legislation. Now, here's what I learned. The impact $8-funded uh, schools have their, their own lobbying entities mm-hmm. that are funded by, guess what, Im- your impact $8, mm-hmm. your tax dollars. Yep. They, go to, they go to fund these different entities that are set up to support the status quo and to protect the impact eight dollars. So that became a, a a very difficult hill to climb politically and in the Congress to use impact aid funding. It was the number one complaint that we got about the bill. In fact, uh, when when Secretary DeVos came before the House Education Committee, and I had the first opportunity, I had to question her. That was her. Um, she was, at that point, she on behalf of the, of the administration opposed our legislation because of um, in in her explanation because of the impact aid aspect of the bill. So, but she did commit at the time to help us come up with a version of the bill that she could support. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to the version um, with, with uh, Dr. Burke and others that we worked on that where, where we are today, we've reintroduced the bill, but without using impact aid dollars to fund the education savings accounts. So currently we have 40 co-sponsors. Um, you're right. You talked about the Senate potentially uh, including this in the NDAA. Um, I serve on the House Armed Services Committee and that's a that's a, uh, a strategy that we have as well on the House side. Um, recently, we've been in discussions with the different service um, uh, secretaries. Uh, and, uh, specifically, I questioned Secretary Spencer, the Secretary of the Navy, a few weeks ago. 
um, who has a real and who showed before the House Armed Services Committee that he has a real issue because he understands the uh, the nature of recruiting and the the retention issues in the Navy um, showed a real interest in the legislation. So the Department of Education and the uh, the, the different service branches are talking about um, different ways that we might be able to use. In the NDA, we might, might be able to include language that would create pilot programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak on behalf of the Navy, but it appears uh, just from my vantage point that the Navy might be a, a realistic place to start to create mm-hmm. a pilot program with the Navy. Now, the, the latest uh, feedback I've received from Secretary DeVos before the, the latest um, House Education Committee, the last time that I questioned her um, six or eight weeks ago, was that she would rather, um, Dr. Burke, she would rather the, that the Pentagon own this program rather than the Department of Education. There might be some merit to that, something we can discuss and debate moving forward. Yeah, wonderful. And, and did, did the change in the funding stream, I mean, so you've now got, you know, the administration more on board. Um, yeah, how's that changing the dynamic in terms of your colleagues in Congress and, and their willingness to be... It helps when the Secretary of Education doesn't tell the committee that she's opposed to your bill, yeah. which is what happened uh, the first time that we introduced it, which was very disappointing, by the way, because there are uh, reasons that we should reform the impact aid dollars. But we decided that uh, tactfully, because we care so so deeply about this legislation, we would remove that political obstacle and uh, look for other funding streams and take impact aid out of the equation and it was telling that none of the opposition initially was based on the underlying idea. It was all about funding streams. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, General, back to you. Um, well, I'm going to ask you the flip side of what I asked you the first uh, thing about retention and readiness. So what what can we do to actually fix that problem? What can be done to help recruit and retain make make the retention a better dynamic? Yeah, thanks, Tim. And I, I just wanted to add before I – to answer your question, this has got a personal aspect to me. I was in uh, Missouri, uh, assigned to Fort Leonard Wood out there, and uh, got orders to Northern Virginia. And so my wife and I were happy about that because Northern Virginia schools have a great reputation, and you know, world, nationwide, of being good. But and so we uh, accepted housing at Fort Belvoir, and l- little did we know or even realize that. And I don't want to cast any aspersions, but the high school that services Fort Belvoir is. Uh, read it at the bottom of those in Virginia for high schools. And I won't name names, and I also recognize the danger of judging high schools based on test scores and things like that. But their test scores are very bad. And so uh, we were kind of in a quandary because we've been celebrating that we're going to now return from Missouri and get the benefit of uh, Northern Virginia schools. So we made the tough decision to enroll my son in a uh, Catholic high school, and I was a colonel at the time. And so colonels, you have this image of a well-paid individual. We, I didn't know how I was going to make it uh, financially, honestly, because it's just uh, a lot of things going on. So I had to take money from my father-in-law, which was, you know, I'm a proud man, and so I, it's not something that I relish doing, but I didn't know how we were going to make the ends meet. And so even I, as a colonel, uh, to put my son in what we considered a decent uh, high school, had to get money from an external source. And as it turns out, it was about $6,000 a year, and, and that made it work for us. And so you think about that kind of person. Think about the military at the vast majority of the military at lower pay grades uh, faced with a similar kind of decision. But uh, to your 
uh, question, Tim. The, I'm of, of the opinion that the marginal value of more pay, we're almost there. I don't know that it's pay that's uh, causing people not to join the military. I think it's a worry about what this will do. Are they Can they hack it in the military? There's all these misconceptions about what goes on in the military. I speak in the same auditorium to our interns that come to Heritage, and I talk to them about a military career, and afterwards they come up to me and they say, hey, I'm really excited about this. I want to serve my country, but I don't think I can hack it. I just, you know, from what I've been told about the military, there's no way I can, can make it. And I was like, well, you look okay. Is there something wrong with you? <laughs> Is this, I mean, are you suffering from some terminal disease or something? Because the military prides itself on getting people to the, you know, not kicking them out to actually make them the standards. And so there's this misinformation about what it means and what it takes to join the U.S. military. So I've been thinking hard about what, what, how do we get military? And I think we have to think non-traditionally about this. I don't, I don't think just offering more money on the recruiter as a bonus or something like that is going to get it. I think we have to appeal to other areas that we have not yet appealed to and maybe look at uh, non-traditional things like education savings account might be a way to get people that are currently not uh, disposed to joining to come in. Yeah, wonderful. Um, one more question for Lindsay, and then I'll open it up to uh, the audience if you all have questions. Talk through that $6,000 number. I mean, there's detractors who would kind of try to critique this and say, that's not enough money for prep school. Talk through the number and how, how we came there. Yeah, well, as General Spore just said, I mean, 6000 bucks was about what you needed. And when you look across the country nationally, if you look at maybe your typical Catholic school, it tends to sort of hover around that amount. Mm-hmm. Think about being, what does an enlisted guy make when he joins? I mean, it's, you know, you said as a colonel, you were in a better position than the enlisted guy. So, you know, if you're coming in and you're not super wealthy uh, coming in and all of a sudden you have a proposal that says we're going to de-link housing from where your child has to attend school, that is a really powerful motivator. And so if all of a sudden maybe you have two children as that enlisted um, um, gentleman who enters the military, all of a sudden we're talking about $12,000 and a real de-linking there. And for someone who is maybe middle income, that amount of money, even if it doesn't cover your total tuition, can make the difference for you to be able to afford tuition. So that's, I think, just a general way to think about when you're hearing various school choice proposals across the country. That's something that comes up quite frequently. Is it actually enough to cover full tuition? It might be. It might not be in a lot of cases, but it can make the difference. And uh, just a couple of other things that I wanted to bring up. When we talk about military families moving, they move frequently. If you're like me and this isn't something that you're steeped in, you might not realize how frequently they move. Uh, We did a survey with EdChoice, formerly the Friedman Foundation, uh, two years ago. It's a nationally representative survey. And we found in that uh, survey that 40% of military families have enrolled their oldest child in at least four schools. I mean, that's a lot of moves for any family. 44% of those military families had taken on a new job to support their child's K-12 education versus 21% of the civilian population. And one-third of military families in our survey had taken out a loan to finance their child's K-12 education versus 11% of the civilian population. That really blew my mind that families were taking out loans for their child's K-12 schooling. So military families are making sacrifices. We all know this, that the civilian uh, population does not, but that uh, extends to their education options as well. 
And the last thing I would say on that, and just you heard it here first, we have an update to the survey coming out in a couple of months. So really excited to re-release that. Uh, so we'll be building off of the survey from 2017. But one of the most notable findings to me in that survey was that although 34% and just 34% of military families in our survey said that they would choose a traditional district school, 80% of military children are enrolled in a traditional public school. So there's a significant misalignment between what military families are looking for and what they actually have access to. And I guess one last thing I would say from that survey is that we actually tested this specific proposal and we ask our respondents, again, nationally representative survey of active duty military families, whether or not they would support a proposal at the federal level to provide education savings accounts to active duty families. And written just that way, 72% of respondents supported that. We only had 15% in opposition to it. So it's something that uh, while we might hear these special interest groups in DC uh, howl and cry about this proposal, military families, it is a kitchen table issue for them. And it is something that they support strongly. Yeah, wonderful. Um, if you have a question, uh, feel free to raise your hand. I'll, I'll go through and, and call on you. Um, and we have a microphone right here. So I'll, right here is a question. Hi, John Grady, Naval Institute. A uh, question on the sea services. I'll come to that. And then the other thing is 30 to 40% of the military live on base. And when you take out the singles, meaning the unmarried with no children, that number drops even lower. So most of them are living in the community. Mm -hmm. Are there particular problems that you have seen in these survey results, including the Military Times ones, related to the sea services, because they have a different rotation policy than the Army, and certainly different than the Air Force. So are those factors in? And then one other question related to that is the Coast Guard in that, since they were the ones who got hammered, and none of them, are, or virtually none of them, are living on a base. I'll just say one really quick thing on, on that and then uh, let the military experts respond to the rest of that, some of which I didn't even understand. So uh, just 4%. Yes, correct. So to that point, just 4% of uh, children of active duty military families attend school on base. So 96% attend uh, a school around base. 80% of those attend a district public school. So this proposal is geared toward those 96% of families who do not uh, have a child who attends school on base. I think you hit the nail on the head. This is why Secretary Spencer acknowledged before the House Armed Services Committee when I questioned him that this is an issue that he's thought deeply about that's affected um, too many sailors and their families in the in the Navy and, and something that I mean, he, he talked about his business background. This seems like a – his business, not political background, so this seemed like a common-sense approach to take care of a, of, a, of a major problem that he faces every day as Secretary of the Navy. He, he specifically talked about the inconsistent educational options that that uh, exist for uh, families in his service, and and uh, encouraged us to keep marching down this path. I don't think I have anything to add. I, I'm not aware. I, I mean, I guess the sea services sometimes have the ability to stay longer at an installation while they're the serving. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what I mean. And so they may have a, 
better opportunity to better situate themselves in terms of school choices, wherever they are. But I don't think that's hugely significant, honestly. Other questions? I have one in the meantime. Um, and maybe, Lindsay, you can, you can take the lead on this. Um, kind of what are the what are the leading edge kind of attacks on this piece of legislation that we're we're getting and kind of talk through the rebuttal to some of them? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of the attack is not dissimilar to the attacks we heard with the impact aid funding. Mm-hmm. And you know, impact aid funding it is a unique funding source. It exists to provide additional federal funding to areas where there is a displaced local property tax base because there's a federal presence, whether that's military or even something like a national park. So there are some unique financing aspects. Our response to that to response to that has always been it really doesn't matter, right? Whatever public funding we provide to a student, military or otherwise, that funding should be provided to the family, full stop. Whatever that family then wants to use that funding for to provide the best education possible for their child, they should be able to access. So this whole idea of separating the financing of education from the delivery of services would extend to any uh, revenue source, federal, state, local, whatever it might be. And so there's that. That's the continued line of attack that I think we'll hear no matter what moving forward, that what will happen to traditional public schools in the wake of any education choice proposal. And, uh, you know, this is something that you hear from many opponents of education choice, but we should be far less concerned about the physical school building, and far more concerned about actual education of the public. And this gets back to the the old Milton Friedman argument, right? Yes, publicly finance education, but that does not mean that education has to be delivered through government schooling. And so what this proposal does is it gets us to to that point where we are actually separating the financing from the delivery. And one of the things that I like to point out on that, and if you've ever heard me talk about education choice, you've probably heard me say this, but there was a great uh, chart that Milton Friedman put out decades ago that talked about the four ways that you can spend money on anything. And education savings accounts are a really good example of this. So he said, you can spend your own money on yourself, you can spend your own money on somebody else, you can spend somebody else's money on yourself, or you can spend somebody else's money on somebody else. This is how public schools spend money. They spend somebody else's money, taxpayer dollars, your taxpayer dollars, on somebody else's children. So there's no incentive there to align services and products in a way that meets the needs of children and is a good value. This proposal and education savings accounts broadly get us much closer to that first example. It's much more like spending your own money, and it is your own money, on your own children. And so all of the incentives are aligned correctly, increasing value and ensuring that you have access to whatever option is the best fit for your child. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's a process of fit that a family should direct, not some bureaucrat who has never met a child and doesn't know her name. Wonderful. Not to mention, um, having served in the Armed Services Committee, faced with the daunting, uh, rising cost of retention and recruitment. I mean, this this solves a fiscal issue as well. If we can better retain and uh, prepare our troops, take away the, these stresses from their lives, and that that fifty percent of a little bit less than fifty percent of military families that either think strongly or altogether get out of the service because of poor educational options for their kids, and we can keep keep uh, those service members in the military, that will save us a tremendous amount of money in the long term. Yeah. Let me just uh, add one more thing. And again, I, I always go local with me. And I, so I, now I live in Alexandria, 
uh, in our high school, they are T.C. Williams, remember the Titans, um, <laughs> it's got a huge capacity problem. They have way more students than they, their physical plant can currently hold. So they're going through these agonizing decisions about should we buy, build a new high school or how do we do this? This proposal, the way I understand it, would contribute to that solution mm -hmm. because the biggest expenditure that they have in the entire city budget would be the construction of a new high school. And this would, because so much of the military, uh, so much of their students are military connected, might have a real yeah. chance of solving some of that problem. Yeah, and can, can I just say on that, so this is something, so if you look across the country at various school choice programs, I mentioned earlier there are 65 uh, options out there now, often that's exactly what you see. It's not that there's a mass exodus from the district system. If the district's meeting the needs of families well, there will be no mass exodus. But often it serves as just sort of a little release valve for the district system, especially you know if you go to Texas or somewhere where they are bursting at the seams in some places where you have schools with trailers and what have you, this really can act for them as just a little bit of a pressure release valve. And so that's another benefit. I would totally agree with that. Congressman, walk through the kind of legislative terrain that we see ourselves in right now. I mean, obviously, we're in the minority in the House, um, but there are still things, you know, that we're, we're, we're doing together to push this. And, and what strategically do you think we could hope for in the near term, um, and how would that unfold? Well, currently, we have 40 co-sponsors. Compare that to 77 last time around, and um, I'm, I'm pleased with that because we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. So one way that you can help is to help us put pressure on uh, members who are inclined to support an initiative like this and ask them to co-sponsor the bill, um, that first and foremost. That, that does a lot for us. That brings more attention to the issue. Once we pass the 77 co-sponsor mark, we can champion um, this initiative yep. and say we're doing better than we did last time. And I think that could happen, um, hopefully, in the Soon. first uh, half of this year. So secondly, uh, we have the NDAA coming up and the Armed Services Committee. And because the um, House Democrat agenda uh, isn't exactly robust, we're, we're wasting a lot of time these days not doing a whole lot of anything. Uh, there will be very few bills that move through the process. Even, even um, altogether moving through the process, you'll see very few legislative um, items move through the House and the Senate. But the NDAA is one vehicle that will, um, without a shadow of, shadow of a doubt, actually go through the process and be signed by the president. So that is one vehicle where we can, where I can offer an amendment or Senator Sass or others on the Senate side, you mentioned Senator Lee, uh, can offer an amendment in the Senate and require a vote for an initiative like this. So the, that's our dual track. Um, while I don't, I'm not naive enough to believe that, that Speaker Pelosi will put this bill in its entirety on the floor for a vote, uh, we could we could force an amendment vote on the NDAA for either a pilot or for a more uh, well-rounded version of what we've introduced. And, and we'll be working with with you on that for certain at Heritage Action. I, I misspoke earlier and, and said M Mike Lee was the lead. He, it's always Mike Lee's the lead on so many of our things that he can kind of just jumps the pot. Of and we've worked with it's Cotton, Sass, um, and Senator Scott on, on this one that have taken the lead and have done a fantastic job. So we'll be working with them. Um, especially on the Senate side, to try and make sure um, that we get an amendment on this on the NDAA. And look, you, this really, um, this is the kind of thing. The NDAA gets so big, um, and you know, if you could get it on the bill in committee, um, you could see a way that it could potentially survive a conference. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. There is, we're definitely going uphill here, but we'll we'll be working with you to that end. Um, 
If there are no other questions I'm going to have, I have one or two more um, before we conclude. Um, and Lindsay, maybe you take the lead on this. Um, describe the, um, the, the consensus that's being built in the policy community around this. Who are our allies? Um, and, um, and so talk about a coalition. Yeah. Yeah, so the really nice thing about working in the education choice space is I think the coalition is pretty fantastic. It's strong, and people broadly agree around the efficacy, particularly, obviously, within the school choice community of proposals like this. Um, there are, you know, sort of nitpicky ideas within that uh, um, sort of community about best, best paths forward. But I will say, if you go to a state today and you talk to a state policymaker or you work with groups like the State Policy Network, I think there's pretty broad consensus now that if a state or even a proposal like this at the federal level is going to advance education choice, that ESAs are a really smart way to do that. Um, we, it is you know, very, I think, um, we're in a good position now to be able to even talk about innovation within this innovative space of education, that this is an innovation on the old voucher idea, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even vouchers are so innovative still today in and of itself. But to be able to use that funding to direct literally every single penny in an account to a service that is the right fit for your child is such an innovation. To be able to roll over year to year into a college savings account, which we didn't mention earlier, is an innovation. So, you know, the coalition's fantastic. It's groups like EdChoice who are here. It's groups like the State Policy Network, the American Federation for Children, uh, groups that have really worked to put education choice uh, and education choice for military families at the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to that point, I mean, maybe Representative Banks, you can t talk about this a little bit. I mean, the, what's attractive about this is that flexibility, right? The flexibility that it gives military family members and just kind of talk through some of the different ways they can use the funds in a very kind of detailed, you know, granular way. Yeah. Um, I mean, once again, just to boil this down to what, what matters, we're either going to continue to be a country and society that believes that our military families, as they move from place to place, should be stuck in schools that are let, are, that are subpar from one, one to the next and trap them in uh, educational options that don't work for them or we're a country that believes that we should take care of our of our military families and once we once we determine that then we get to solutions like this so the, these military education savings accounts would um, they would pay for private school tuition online programs as Lindsay said before textbooks um, AP exams apprenticeship or vocational programs, 529 contributions, just to name a few um, options. You know, one, one thing that we haven't talked a lot about today is homeschooling. Homeschooling is a great option for many families, whether they're in the military or not. In the military, though, um, homeschooling is a choice that's chosen by families twice as much as civilian families. Because it gives the kids some continuity. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So um, this would help fund textbooks and other supplies for homeschool families. But that, that statistic in and of itself um, is, is the reason that we're debating this issue because in many cases our military families are left with, with homeschooling as the only option versus the public school option, which might not be, the, might not be a good fit for them. And, and legislation like this helps offset some of the costs involved with that, if not allowing them to choose a, a different choice altogether. And Tim, can I just put one other point on that? So uh, we, a few years ago now, went out to Arizona to visit a family who was using an ESA. So Arizona was the first state to ever do an education savings account option. There are now six states that have them in place. And it was great because we went to a home of a mother who had a young boy. He was 
probably seven or eight at the time, and um, was on the autism spectrum and needed some special attention, she had actually moved her family from Minnesota to Arizona because the only way to get him services in Minnesota was to engage in this litigious sort of debate with the school district, which was not ideal. So she moves to Arizona because they had an education savings account option in place. And it was just amazing to see it in action. So we go over to film the family, and a private tutor comes over to their home and gives, his name was EJ, gives EJ a lesson in, I think it was math that day, and exactly what he needed. EJ, she comes in, he runs up, hugs her. He had this great relationship with his private tutor that his mother had chosen. The lesson wraps up. The mom pulls out her education savings account debit card, swipes it on the tutor's iPhone, pays the tutor directly Mm. for that perfectly aligned service that that child needed. I mean, that's the type of innovation that we need to really foster educational excellence and excellence uh, throughout the country and and really serve our armed services as well as they serve us. Absolutely. Wonderful. All right. Well, we need to get the congressman back for votes on the Hill, but uh, please thank me in joining our panelists and thank you all for coming.